Hello and welcome to Deep North. We are here today in the studio with Iceland Review editor Greta Sigrider Einarsdóttir. We are going to be taking a look at her recent piece, Give a Man a Fish, taking stock of Iceland's coastal fishing system. It's just after six in the morning, and Guðmundur Geirdal is pouring his first cup of coffee. It's spring, so the sun has already been up for a couple of hours, but a light veiling of clouds means that there's a fresh snap to the air. Down by the Arnarstabe harbor, the squeaky cries of the seabirds are loud enough to drown out the murmured chatting of the other fishermen preparing their boats for the day. The tiny harbor has four wharves, and enough room to comfortably hold around 15 boats. Today, about 50 of them are packed into tight rows, and there are grizzled sailors everywhere, checking the oil, fiddling about with ropes and containers, and drinking jet-black coffee strong enough to add a few grey hairs to their chest. By the time the clock strikes 6.30am, each sailor boards their boat, and one by one, they sail out to the fishing grounds. It's the first day of the coastal fishing season, and for the next three months, these independent fishermen on their small boats will let out their lines each morning, each bringing back just about 774 kilos of sparkling fresh cod each afternoon. For Guðmundur, steering his boat away from shore, cup of coffee still in his hand and the engine purring, this is the best part of his day. On this subarctic island, where winters are long and dark and life was a daily struggle, fishermen command respect comparable to what other countries reserve for their troops. Their hours were long, their work was grueling, and every time they boarded an open boat and sailed out into the North Atlantic, they were risking life and limb. Even today, when bigger ships and better equipment have removed much of the danger, The importance of fish in Iceland can hardly be overstated. It's the foundation of our economy in more ways than one. Guðmundur grew up on an even smaller island off the mainland, Grímsey. It's so far north that it straddles the Arctic Circle and is populated mostly by gulls, puffins and auks, alongside a handful of humans. He started sailing out occasionally with his father at the age of seven. By the time he was twelve, he and his brother would go out without any adults, and at fourteen he'd graduated to solo trips. He spent most of his four or five decades of his life going to sea. In his lifetime, the fishing industry has transformed. Technology has taken vast leaps, ships are bigger, safer and more productive, and the work is easier. The industry is also making significantly more money. But there's also been consolidation in the industry, and instead of independent sailors, most fishermen are now salaried workers. For the remaining independent small boat fishermen, adjusting to the limitations of the regulations now in place is a struggle. When Guðmundur started fishing, there were no limits placed on what a fisherman on a small boat could catch. They'd sell their fish directly to the processing plant for, admittedly, a pittance, but if they wanted to, they could go fishing all year round, all day and all night. In the 1980s, 
following a period of rapid technological development within the fishing industry, Iceland introduced a fishing management system to protect stocks from overfishing and to regulate the business. For the most part, it's considered a success, as it has made large fisheries more productive while preventing overfishing and stabilized an industry that previously was constantly on the brink of bankruptcy. But there were some side effects. When the system was instituted, the share in the overall catch quota was distributed based on fishing experience. Any who wanted to join the profession after that had to buy their way into the system. These days, you can't just buy a boat and start fishing. You have to pay for permission. Since quota prices are prohibitively expensive for most independent fishermen, many choose to rent quota instead. When the fishing management system was established, it was based on the allocation of catch quotas to individual vessels on the basis of their catch performance, generally referred to as the quota system. Later generations of fishermen entering the profession did not have the opportunity to earn their quota, having to buy their way in. In 2001, two men in the Westfjords had had enough of the system that required fishermen to lease the right to fish from others who had received it free of charge. In an effort to challenge the system's validity, they announced their intention to fish without permits. In September that year, they sailed out and brought home a catch of 5,292 kilograms of gutted cod, 289 kilograms of haddock, 4 kilograms of catfish, and 606 kilograms of place. For their crime, they were fined 1 million ISK, or 2.6 million when adjusted for inflation. Their company was subsequently declared bankrupt, and one of the men lost their home. They then took their case to the United Nations Human Rights Committee, which ruled in 2007 that it wasn't the fishermen who were engaging in unlawful fishing. It was the system that was broken, and that by allowing catch quota to be sold, leased, and inherited, instead of reverting back to the state, the government was locking out future generations from benefiting from this industry. One of the ways the Icelandic authorities responded to this criticism was by creating the current coastal fishing system, tacking it onto an already complicated fishing management system. This way, they'd allocate some quota to independent fishermen, but not enough to support year-round work. In light of the coastal fishing quota pool repeatedly running out before the end of the season, in addition to general displeasure with the limitations of coastal fishing, both in terms of time and catch allowance, the recently founded Coastal Fishing Union has discussed seeking further measures. Even if it's the first day of coastal fishing, Guðmundur has been hard at work for some time. I go fishing all year round, even though that's nonsense really. I was line fishing in December and January. At that time of year, there's about five hours of daylight in Icelandic waters and a high probability of storms. We were sailing out from Grindavík in minus 15 degrees, Guðmundur tells me. On the off-season, Guðmundur catches safe on rented quota. It's hard to get it in the trawls, so the larger fisheries rent out the quota for low prices. Despite the fisheries' disinterest, or perhaps because of it, Seith fetches decent prices at the fish market. 
you can get by of the safe, Guðmundur shrugs. In April, he switches gears. I did lumpfish in April. That's okay too. A little bit of a change. Lumpfish isn't a highly sought after fish, but its roe is valued on the Asian market. It's inconsequential enough that authorities don't even issue lumpfish quotas. You can fish as much lumpfish as you want during a set period of time. By the time spring rolls around, it's time for coastal fishing. Fishermen who sign up for coastal fishing can access a pool of caught quota that's set aside for this purpose. This year, the independent fishermen can catch up to 10,000 tons of cod, just under 5% of the total annual quota. For the number of boats wanting to partake, it's not enough. While the season lasts from the beginning of May and throughout August, last year the quota ran out in mid-July. There's a high likelihood that will happen again this year. Independent fishers are on paper protected by the patchy regulatory framework that ostensibly secures the right to work in the profession, but in reality has the fishers on a tight leash. Guðmundur explains. They added all sorts of provisions to the system, so it's almost impossible for people to live off of, while still claiming that the system is open to anyone. The system is a complicated one, with regulations for boat length, fishing gear, engines, fish species, and so on. Authorities' attempts to improve it through the years have only made it more convoluted, a patchwork of regulations requiring a whole separate dictionary to understand. The fishermen admittedly could make grumbling a competitive sport, but they do have plenty to grumble about. You can sail out 48 days in total, 12 days per month during the summer with a mandatory three-day weekend, Friday to Sunday, Guðmundur tells me. Okay, some people would think that was enough, but no, you can only go out half a day each time, so these aren't full days but half days. Okay, but then they tell you that you can only catch a maximum amount of 774 kilos per day, and you can only have four handrails. I don't know why they feel it's necessary to interfere in those decisions. Then it's not enough to have a limit on how much each boat can catch. There's also a total limit. So if everyone is doing well, that pool of catch quota can run out before the end of the season. For the independent fisherman, who's already facing tough competition with the large fisheries, the strict regulations feel like overkill. Then there's a surveillance system, Guðmundur says. You have all sorts of live surveillance systems on the boat, and if any of them get turned off, you get called back to land. No dangerous criminal in the country has this amount of surveillance. He jovially suggests that maybe it would just be easier if they fit all independent fishermen with electric collars that would automatically start to contract if they're not in harbour at the right time. But the thing is, for a fisher, it's all worth it. The work is just the best. Fishing by handrail is to me the most fun type of fishing you can do. Guðmundur's tone softens. A fisherman from the age of 14, he took his own kids sailing at that age. It was such a great way to get to know my kids. I spent a lot of time away when they were young, due to the nature of my work. But I remember when I took my girl out her first summer. For the first week, she didn't have much to say, but by week two, she'd start talking. There was no one else around to talk to. By the end of the summer, I knew everything about the cutest boy in school. It created a really strong bond. 
They might have thought it sucked, but I loved it. Fishing is hard work, but to Guðmundur, the type of coastal fishing you do in the summer is easy. Coastal fishing is fine for old men like me. It's a joke, really. You could easily do it in your slippers. When the fishing's good, you can catch those 7 to 800 kilos in 15 minutes. And I have. While the coastal fishing quota isn't big enough to warrant large investments, Guðmundur maintains that it's easy enough to start. If you're okay with sailing on an older, smaller boat, it's fine. You don't want to invest in a 30 million boat for this. But if you get a boat for 6 to 7 million ISK, you should be able to catch enough your first summer to pay it off. Arnastape is popular among coastal fishers, as evident by the tightly packed harbor. The atmosphere is great. We have coffee together and it's wonderful to sail out, looking out over the rocks and the birds. Reminds you of the old childhood home. The fishing grounds are close by, and sometimes you can start fishing within 15 minutes. Or up to an hour and a half, Guðmundur Hedges. Based on weather, and if I'm going for Seath that stays further from land. Sometimes you bet on the wrong fishing ground and then have to go somewhere else, that also happens. Guðmundur has been sailing from Arnastapi for a while, but he's seen almost every harbour in Iceland. During his working week, he sleeps on the boat. With nothing tying him down, if he gets bored at Arnastabi, he can simply sail to the Westfjords tomorrow and continue working from there. I think all islanders have a touch of a need for exploration, seeing a new coastline. He knows most of the other guys who are sailing this season. We know the area inside out. The guys who have been there for longer know it better. They let the others know where the fishing is good. We help each other out. There's a reason he chooses to sail from Arnastapi in West Iceland instead of going east. If you were to fish by hook and line all year round, you'd start in the south in January, February, even April. In May, you'd move to Breiðafjörður, and by June, you'd be in the southernmost part of the Westfjords, July in Suðurir and Bólungavík, August in Siglufjörður, and in September, you're in Langanes. The fish travels that way. This explains another strife related to the coastal fishing rules. The country is divided into regions, and fishermen are expected to land their fish within the region. But the regions don't have equal access to the fish. That's caused tension. The guys in the northeast are sure that the quota pool has been emptied in July, when the fish is just arriving in their region. It used to be divided by territories, with each territory getting a set amount to fish. The problem was that the Westfjords, the area with the most fishers, would cast their quota in five or six days, while the guys in the east had enough fishing for more than 40 days, up to 60. Guðmundur shakes his head. I understand them wanting that deal back, I do, but I don't think we're ever getting more than the 48 days now. From the moment the fishing management system was implemented, the right to uncaught fish started gathering into fewer and fewer hands. Not only could quota be sold, it could also be offered as collateral for mortgages. In a book called Gambling Debt, Iceland's Rise and Fall in the Global Economy, academics describe the relationship between the fishing industry and Iceland's overinflated banking system in the early aughts. As quota prices grew, so did the loans that the bank could offer and the income the banks derived from these loans. In a matter of years, the seafood industry and the banks had become so intertwined that any radical rethinking of the fishing management system 
could potentially negatively impact the country's economy. Anthropologist Niels Einarsson mentions that as early as 2000, a committee was founded to calculate what would happen if the authorities were to recall some of the quota and redistribute it. It concluded that recapturing quotas at as little as 5% per annum would lead to a 42% decrease in the overall capital value of fish firms and cause much unrest among financial institutions. Following the banking collapse in 2008, authorities again tried to revamp the quota system. By that point, fishing industry loans were such a big part of banks' income that any significant changes would run the risk of another collapse. And recently, more than a decade later, the Ministry of Fisheries has appointed four workgroups consisting of 30 people in total, whose role is to fix the system once and for all. Guðmundur, for one, isn't getting his hopes up. The general feeling among the independent fishermen is that they're constantly battling a complicated system that seems set up to make fishers' life difficult. There are currently two organizations fighting for independent fishermen's rights, the National Association of Small Boat Owners and the Coastal Fishing Union. Those guys are great, Guðmundur says, but the bad part is that they're all loners. These are guys who've always been the captain of their own ship and have never had to worry about anyone's opinion but their own. Getting them to unite to help some guy from Bakkafjörður, that's never going to happen. When Guðmundur was approached about the seat on the board, he replied with a now familiar mix of frankness and cynicism. I told them that if they were ever in need of a little pessimism and bad attitude, they could call me. But it's much better to get young men who have faith that it can get better. Unfortunately, I don't have that faith anymore. Guðmundur has never run into any major issues at sea. Well, he adds... In the old days, you'd experience bad weather at sea that hadn't been forecast. It would take you several hours to cover the few kilometers back to land, and really you were fighting for your life. That would happen maybe once every other summer. But today, that just doesn't happen. In my view, that's the biggest reason we haven't lost any ships lately. Boats have gotten better, sure, but first and foremost, the forecasts have improved so much. He bricked for a second. But I'm never nervous. There's nothing that can happen to me out here. For all his self-professed pessimism, Guðmundur is quick to reply when asked what he thinks would fix the system. In my opinion, all handreel fishing should be unlimited. The maximum amount you're able to catch that way is so small as to be insignificant. Even if every single Icelander went out handline fishing, it wouldn't make a dent in the overall fish stocks. Unlike when it is caught in a net or trawl, a fish, he explains, doesn't bite the hook unless it's hungry. It doesn't bite at night, and it doesn't bite during spawning season. It's impossible to affect stocks this way. Not to mention that you can't really fish in more than 1 or 2% of Iceland's territory, as the water has to be just the right depth. You don't go anywhere that's deeper than 100 fathoms, and that's pretty close to the coast. Guðmundur isn't done listing the benefits of small hook-and-line boats. They have less impact on the biosphere, they don't harm the seabed, and while they do use oil, they charge batteries on their way out to use while fishing. While Guðmundur enjoys talking about his work, he is usually alone on his boat. 
while he admits that now and then he'd appreciate some company. He likes it that way. I have two favorite parts of my day. Sailing out to the fishing grounds is always so much fun. You're excited and full of faith that the day will be a good one. Then it's always good to land if you've had a good day, he pauses. But then again, I'm not right in the head. I always believe it's going to be a good day. If you were to ask me how the work had been for the past 40 or 50 years, I'd tell you that the weather was mostly great and the fishing good. But for a few decades, I kept a diary. I've tried reading them twice, but each time I was so overwhelmed with how awful it sounded. This isn't me trying to be blindly optimistic. I simply genuinely expect every new day to be a good one. Well, thank you for sharing the piece, Greta. Thank you. So the current fishing quota system was introduced in the 80s. What can you just briefly tell me about the old system that it replaced? Yes, in the uh, 1983, they established the catch quota system, which meant there was just a limited amount of uh, fish that people were allowed to catch uh, in order to prevent overfishing. Um, But it wasn't just a problem of managing overfishing. It was also just a way to regulate sort of the the seafood industry. Before that, there have been rapid technological advances in the 20th century, boats getting bigger, and you needed a different sort of system to manage that than the open boats of the 19th century and earlier. So the fishing industry just wasn't handling that effectively, and they were struggling financially. And as far as I understand it, uh, some of these reforms also came in the wake of the herring collapse, right? Yes. Um, There was a herring fishing boom in the early 20th century with everyone who had managed it going uh, to the fishing villages to uh, work in the harbor. Women uh, packed the fish into barrels and and men went out fishing during the day. When the herring stocks collapsed due to overfishing, it devastated many fishing villages around the country. Yeah. And people did want to uh, make sure that that didn't happen with cod. So just for context again, uh, so, you know, of course there is, so so of course we have the trawlers, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And then we have these small independent, fishermen mm-hmm. who are fishing on coastal boats mm-hmm. and you know just in broad strokes how much of the quota do they have and how much of the quota do like the large trawlers have yeah so uh large fishing industry companies do hold uh, most of the cod quotas uh small boat fishermen the and these are the boats you see in in like rural harbors um just like bobbing gently by the docks um they hold much less of the quotas. Some of them own, own quotas, some of them don't. For the coastal fishing season, the cod quota that's that's sort of taking a set aside for these fishermen is just under 5%. Yeah. There is clearly a lot of discontent with a lot of the details of how the system works. Um, and uh, Guthmundur kind of, you know, 
playfully jokes that maybe they should all just wear shock collars. <laughs> uh, and, you know, so I mean, like, like, like clearly that kind of speaks to a sense that there is maybe like oppressive regulation. So to me, it might kind of seem like maybe just the weight limit is all you really need, you know, because I mean, clearly if uh, there is kind of good enough regulation to make sure that when you come into port, uh, you know, that you don't have a weight of your fish quota that exceeds a certain limit. And, you know, in my mind, that might be sufficient, actually. Um, but, I mean, clearly there are all of these other measures in place, like there is onboard surveillance. Mm -hmm. And as he says, uh, like if any of these systems go off, I mean, rather like a police body cam, actually, mm -hmm. uh, you kind of get like recalled uh, to harbor. Um, and, you know, so, I mean, I, I, I can definitely appreciate that for an independent fisherman, they feel like there's no trust maybe mm -hmm. like this industry, which is already uh, kind of struggling to compete uh, and, you know, actually kind of provide livelihoods for small communities. Like there's all of these kind of unnecessary extra features. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I guess just my question is why is it so, why, why is it so complicated? Yes. Well, independent men, Independent fishermen definitely feel that uh, they have a disproportionate amount of surveillance when compared to uh, uh, larger fisheries. Uh, obviously, we're telling the story this time from the point of view of the independent fishermen. The thing is that many of the regulations are also in place in order to uh, in order to ensure their safety as well. They, I mean, they are alone in their boats, and uh, the time limits are in place. Uh, so people aren't, you know, going out in the early hours of the night or staying out for days on end, which may, uh, you know, not enough rest may impair their um, safety. Um, yeah, you would think maybe just telling them, uh, giving them mandatory three-day weekends and telling them how much they could catch would be enough, but uh, it's also... They have to uh, keep in mind that the quota they are giving to the independent fishermen is something that the larger fisheries and the and the quota holders, you know, do believe that this being taking off their share. It's a way of it's a different way of thinking about it. So they have to um, sort of uh, make the arguments that they are putting real strict regulations on how much the independent fishermen can catch. And the thing is, in, in these uh, small towns, it's changed so much in the in the years past. Like it used to be that uh, in the 19th century, everyone would go out on an open boat, uh, and the fishing season was mostly in the spring, so in awful weather, <laughs> they would go out uh, and fish, and they would uh, split the cats evenly, but, uh, you know, teenagers would maybe get half a share, and the captain would get two or three or four shares. I don't have the exact numbers. So it was always... Um, people were like independent contractors, really, in that sense. Yeah. Today, with the large fisheries... Uh, and you know more crews on boats instead of on larger boats instead of independent fishermen going out on small boats to fish for their families um 
many fishermen in small towns are just uh, laborers, although they do retain some parts of the old system. Uh, for example, in, in a recent fishermen wage negotiation, I remember them uh, fighting about uh, that the fishermen have to pay their share in when the fisheries get new boats. Mm. And that's just like a remnant of the old system that's sort of never been negotiated out of their contracts. It's just a, like a fun fact. <laughs> yeah, I mean, certainly uh, the way that these small boat fishermen understand themselves, mm-hmm. I think still has a lot of this kind of romantic mythology and yeah there's this sense that they should just be able to go out and fish that they uh that you know the fish in the waters around iceland are a communal uh property of the nation and everyone should be able to you know work as a fisherman as people have done for centuries instead of having to buy their way into a system yeah and it's a really really significant change to go from that to being a salaried worker basically Yes, or, or wage labor. I really. mean, I, and just the job of a fisherman has changed so much in the past few decades. For one thing, it's become much safer as well. I mean, the number of of uh, fishermen deaths in the early twentieth century are, are just incredibly high. Versus, we've now had uh, several years where we have lost no fishermen. Um, so, I mean, there's been big changes. Uh, but let's not forget that the current fishing management system, I mean, it was put in place for a reason. They did have to uh, find a way to keep from overfishing and to sort of make sure that uh, the fishing industry, uh, you know, wasn't constantly on the brink of collapse. Then just like how you uh, split the shares and, and who gets access to it, that's something we've been basically, the system was implemented in 1984, I believe, and, and ever since they've been fighting over how to, um, it was uh, significantly changed in ni- the 1990, though. So um, <clears throat> a little anecdote that you uh, retell that I think kind of really captures this fisherman mentality really well uh, is this story of the Westfjords fishermen who mm. engage in this little act of you know, I guess you could maybe call it civil disobedience, uh, and they kind of knowingly go out and kind of commit the crime of fishing without quota. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what can you kind of tell me about uh, like what ultimately came of all that? What, what what the ultimate impact was? Yes, it's uh, people have cited this as sort of the not the reason they implemented the coastal fishing system, but sort of the the catalyst for the changes that ultimately resulted in that coastal fishing system. So uh, the Westfjords have a long history of fishing and they have um, in the past often been sort of been considered to have been left out of the success of the fishing industry system. Um, The story of uh, population dwindling in Towns in the Westfjords is a much longer one that we go, won't go into here. But there was a sense of, of uh, the system being unjust. So when some fishermen were had a failing uh, fishing company, they 
in a sort of a last-ditch effort to challenge the system's validity because they believe they should have the right to fish just like everyone else instead of having to pay someone else for the right to fish. Um, and they went out and like uh, let people know beforehand that they were intended to fish without quota in order to challenge the system because in order to have the case brought before court, you have to have a, a case to discuss. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they ended up losing it and with some financial catastrophe for for the men involved. But they brought their case before the United Nations Human Rights Committee. It took years to get through the committee, but uh, the committee's findings was a bit of a shock for the Icelandic system. Uh, Icelandic politicians had been pretty proud of their fishing management system up until then. Um, and it was sort of presented as a model for what other countries could achieve, other fishing nations. Uh, but the Human Rights Committee found that uh, this was hindering people's right to, to choose their own profession. By this is, And this is very... Uh, the nitty-gritty details of... Uh, of, uh, of the whole system, but they believed that the making the quota uh, inheritable and like allowing people to buy and sell the quota and, and use it as a collateral meant that it was property instead of um, something that the the nation owned. Yeah. Um, just as an aside, it's actually kind of interesting. Um, Right now, whaling is a lot in the news, and uh, the broad outlines of this legal argument are actually rather similar because uh, the pro-whaling camp in Iceland have actually used uh, this same reasoning um, through the uh, United Nations um, Human Rights Committee mm. that uh, people have a right to kind of sustainably exploit economic resources within their country and uh, the whalers have basically claimed that this is, you know, what they're doing, and uh, you know that that they have a right to a national resource. Um, yeah, I mean, it's of course there's room to disagree there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's always going to be a much longer conversation. And obviously, if you uh, just talk to some independent fishermen and hear the story from their point of view, you're going to get a much different story than when you. Uh, talk to a marine biologist or a mm, someone who runs a large fishery. Everyone has their side of the story, and it's just such a complicated issue that is you can't really get into the details. But uh, the thing is that yes, there is a sort of a basic human right to choose your own profession and be able to uh, utilize natural resources, and everyone who have, should have their share in them. But we also have um, like governments. Uh, have uh, the ability to restrict those freedoms if they believe it necessary to protect yeah. so wildlife. Yeah, I will admit that I was broadly ignorant of the details of the quota system until yes, pretty most recently. people are. It's such a complicated system. It's so hard to understand it. But I will also admit that, you know, when I was reading your piece and also just kind of looking a little bit into it myself, uh, I I was struck by how unjust it feels. Um, 
for just a little brief historical philosophical side note, you know, I mean, the way that property generally works is that uh, way back in the distant past, uh, somebody like a king or some distant ancestor just took something from someone or they settled empty land like in Iceland. And, you know, with centuries, uh, their ownership of that thing kind of just becomes long and distant and traditional enough that you just kind of accept it as a fact of nature. And, oh, uh, the king just owns all the land because he's the king or whatever. But, you know, somebody did have to take that initially. And it is very strange uh, to have this system where, you know, within living memory, Mm -hmm. uh, a bunch of people were just given this. Well, they were given it based on a fishing experience. So the people who were already fishing at the time and I think it was over a period of five years, like they were, the quota was distributed uh, on the basis of experience. Sure. But, you know, I mean, I guess uh, after the 2007-2008 banking collapse, Mm. there were a lot of calls to, you know, nationalize the Mm -hmm. fishing industry. And, you know, I think that sometimes when we hear this term nationalize, we think of something, you know, rather extreme and perhaps Soviet Um, But, you know, I mean, it is a little bit strange that one of the most important natural resources is not just um, kind of private property, but, yeah, that it can also be, like, inherited in this Mm -hmm. way, uh, that these small independent uh, fishermen do have to actually rent quota sometimes i mean like like just like it's land or something like you have to rent it if you can't afford to buy it yeah and 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 some people have argued that the prices are overinflated and have been for a long time and it it is in the uh interest of uh fishing quota holders and the banking industry to keep prices inflated um i think at the time it's just so it, it was also just hard to like foresee what the consequences would be obviously hindsight is 2020 and and now we can easily see all the flaws and how the system was implemented uh and there have been several attempts to try to revamp the quota system and yeah. there's currently one ongoing um uh Nokar, uh a project uh directly translated that's just like our resource yeah. um is uh, about to publish their findings in uh, this fall, I believe. It'll be interesting to see what they uh, come up with and what changes they see. They One of the things that they have talked about is this... Um, their preliminary findings indicate that having a fishing management system is a good thing. Yes. <laughs> Just that is basic. Uh, but that there are two sort of opposing goals with the fishing management system. It is, for one, to um, maximize profit of a limited resource, uh, and two, to have be a sort of a social support network for rural towns and the countryside and independent fishermen. And there are all sorts of things that have been sort of tacked onto the system in order to try to improve it for... Um, especially people in, in rural villages, although it should be noted that Reykjavik is the largest fishing town in the country. Um, but many of these systems are 
sort of outdated attempts to fix it. There is, for example, something called Linu Evilnun, which is, it's basically where you pay people to do something by hand that is much easier and better to do um, in a machine. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like if we paid journalists more if they typed out their uh, articles on a typewriter. (laughs) (laughs) And there are, I mean, there are many ideas on how to fix this, but also, also there's, you know, powerful lobbyism from the people who, are currently benefiting from the system. Um, and, I mean, the seafood industry has also brought an extraordinary amount of, of innovation. I mean, there is a lot of effort put into maintain the blue economy, as it's known. And, in fact, now uh, many of the caught byproducts are, are producing as much or, or more money than the actual cut fillets. Yeah. I mean, there are companies, you know, making uh, medical products from like cut a, skin. There, Paris has gotten really big recently. Yeah, and, and, and you know, a collap, a popular energy drink, is uh, oh. contains... Uh, fish collagen. F- fish collagen, exactly. <laughs> I mean, so it's not like it's a black and white system. It's not something that's just easy to just abolish and you know, rethink from the start, from the ground up. Uh, we have currently have 30 people trying to figure out the best solution going forward. Glimmeter isn't hopeful <laughs> that the, it, the committee's findings will help. Um, but also there's a problem with the current fish, coastal fishing management system, and Glimmeter uh, mentioned that repeatedly, is there aren't a lot of newcomers to the industry, there isn't any yeah. recruitment happening. Um, it's just the uh, older fishermen who've been doing it for decades, sort of still doing it the old way. So yeah, I mean, it is very hard to maybe convince the younger generation that this is something that they should learn mm. when, by design, you can't work full time from it. Actually, yeah. but the thing is, to keep an industry healthy, you need big companies, you need the large fishing industries, you need the innovation they bring, but they can't survive without the medium fisheries and the small independent workers. And in my mind, just as a general just policy for everything, we should be um, sort of fostering an environment where um, there is a uh, there is a place for everyone in the system. Um, and I mean, many people within the large fisheries have also talked about that it's just a matter of now there is a limited resource. We have limited it. We have said like this is the amount of fish that everyone can catch. Of course, everyone wants as big as pie, of, uh, big a share of the pie as possible. So, setting <laughs> regulations that make place make a place for everyone would be probably the best way to go forward. But when you have this sort of like flawed policies in place. It's sort of hard to um, hard to mend that with one stroke of the pen. Yes, it is. Uh, well, I think that we'll leave it there today. Uh, mm-hmm. But thank you so much uh, for coming in to talk today about coastal fishing, Greta. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>
Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English language publication on Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Iceland Review at our website.